Peace be upon you. God willing, I want to start with a, a, a true story from uh, 1943 during World War II. So there was a person who was about 21 years old. His name was Charlie Brown, and he was flying his first mission over a German airspace. And he was flying a B-17 bomber. And he takes off, and he, uh, they go into formation, and immediately he gets bombarded by uh, uh, German uh, fighter pilots. Uh, apparently there was 15 fighter pilots on him, and they completely uh, pretty much annihilated his uh, uh his uh, plane uh, to the point that his gunman was dead. Uh, everyone was injured and wounded and, you know, missing limbs with the exception of himself. And the uh, plane nosedives down uh, with the uh, just about uh, to crash. And somehow he's able, able to uh, maneuver the plane to keep it um, uh, flying. And on the ground, a German Air Force pilot by the name of Franz Stigler sees this and uh, jumps into his plane with the intent of taking the plane down. So he flies up, and as he approaches the plane, he just sees how bad of a shape it is. And not only is it, you know, bullet holes everywhere, missing multiple engines, uh, he sees the uh, uh, blood pouring down from the side of the uh, the plane from the uh, the gunmen. Uh, he sees, you know, the uh, people inside, and he decides to fly, fly right next to uh, the B-17 uh, bomber, and he makes eye contact with Charlie Brown, and they look at each other. And Charlie Brown thinks at this moment, you know, his life is over. And the uh, German pilot does something absolutely uh, unheard of. He uh, flies underneath the plane and he escorts it outside of uh, German airspace and uh, the two-part company. And the question was, you know, what happened uh, at this moment? And, uh, you know, you would think that with uh, uh, Charlie Brown, there's no guarantee that he was going to be able to make it back uh, to land safely. And with uh, Franz Sickler, you know, if he went back and they heard what happened, uh, for sure, they would think that, um, you know, this was an act of treason and punishable by death. And, um, you know, both of them survived that incident. And when Charlie Brown goes back, he tells his commanding officer and his commanding officer is very excited, you know, about the uh, the, the morality uh, that was uh, witnessed. And um, he goes to tell the, uh, uh, you know, basically try to spread the word and immediately he gets shut down. And an hour later, uh, Charlie Brown's told to never talk about this event again because they didn't want to humanize the Germans. And um, Franz Stigler also uh, survived the event for one reason or another. Uh, he wasn't uh, uh, prosecuted for uh, treason and he wasn't killed. And fast forward 50 years later, um, Charlie Brown writes, looking for this individual, you know, it's uh, consumed him. He wanted to know what happened to this uh, German pilot. And um, Franz Stigler at the time is living in Canada, sees this, uh, this letter in one of these uh, uh, fighter pilot magazines and uh, responds back and the two unite. And um, it's absolutely a, uh, a miraculous uh, event, you know, that God allowed us to uh, to have documented, um, to reflect upon. And the whole purpose of bringing this up is, you know, sometimes we're at odds with people. And the question is, what is the chronic uh, response to how we need to, to behave? And I want to come back to the story at the end. So there's something on the Internet known as a it's an observation known as a Godwin's law. And it's uh, uh, observed by a uh, he was an attorney and what he, he proposed, which holds to be true for the most part, is any time two individuals come into debate online, uh, be it on any social media site, Twitter, or Facebook. Uh, what happens inevitably is that the <laughs> one of the two parties will call the other uh, a Nazi Hitler or some comparison of the, uh, the two or uh, to World War Two. And the question is, why do they do this? You know, what's the intent of uh, attributing someone to, uh, you know, Nazi or Hitler? You know, these are very extreme. And from my understanding, it's because people want to deal with absolutes. They don't want to deal with ambiguity. They know that Hitler is bad. 
They know Nazism is bad. So therefore, if they can equate the person's behavior to this, they feel like they've won the argument. And in, among submitters, we have a similar phenomenon where instantly, any two times, you know, uh, two submitters, believers, they get into a debate. It's very tempting to just call the other side a hypocrite, enemy of God, idol worshiper, uh, or something of the sort. And it gives us a feel of certainty that, you know, there's no way that this person could be right because they're a hypocrite, they're an idol worshiper, they're a disbeliever, you know, name the uh, uh, whatever it is that you want. And in uh, 652, it reads, so we seek refuge in God from saying they're rejected. Do not dismiss those who implored their Lord day and night, devoting themselves to him alone. You are not responsible for their reckoning, nor are they responsible for your reckoning. If you dismiss them, you will be a transgressor. And um, this is a very powerful verse uh, that, you know, God is telling us, do not dismiss those who implore their Lord day and night. And you see this, you know, there's people who are sincere believers. Maybe there's some element of their practice that's off or some understanding that's off. But God is telling us specifically for these individuals, we're not responsible for their reckoning. So what is reckoning? Reckoning is uh, to reckon something is to have an opinion. And a reckoning is a measurement of that opinion. So you're not responsible for their opinion, their measurement of their opinion, what the outcome of that opinion is, nor are they responsible for your reckoning. And God says, if we dismiss them, we will be transgressors. So one of the immediate response when hearing this is a lot of people say, oh, you can't, uh, because of this, you cannot judge. And we know that this isn't chronically correct. In 4105, God tells us that we can judge. It says, we have sent down to you the scripture truthfully in order to judge among the people in accordance with what God has shown you. You shall not side with the betrayers. And um, even in chapter uh, uh, 25, uh, it's called, or Surah 25, it's called the Statute Book. And in 2185, it says, Ramadan is the month during which the Quran was revealed, providing guidance for the people, clear teachings, and the Statute Book. So the Statute Book means a book of law. So God is telling us we can judge by means of the Quran. The Quran itself is a book of law. And by God's leave, we judge by the, the uh, laws and rules of men. We can judge by the laws and rules of God. And um, we see numerous incidents of this. You know, God tells us, for instance, uh, to choose our friends carefully in chapter 3, verse 28 and 577. So we have to distinguish who are the friends that we want to be around and who are the ones we want to avoid. Um, in 2, 2 21, it reads, uh, do not marry idol worshipers. Uh, it says, do not marry idolatrous unless they believe or a believing woman is better than an idolatrous, even if you like her, nor shall you give your daughters in marriage to idolatrous men unless they believe a believing man is better than an idolater, even if you like him. These invite to hell while God invites to the paradise and forgiveness as he wills. He clarifies his revelations for people that they may take heed. So, you know, when we're selecting uh, who we want to marry, uh, who we're allowing our children to be married to, um, this is one of the criteria. Are, are they an idol worshiper? So again, all these are uh, saying that, look, you know, we have to judge by the merits of the book, uh, by the Quran, by the verses in the Quran. And one of the most important things to judge is ourselves. If we say we can't judge, then how are we supposed to judge our own actions? Uh, one of the things that we talked in, um, uh, in depth about is this concept of uh, moral relativism, uh, that, oh, you know, there is no right and wrong. Uh, everything is just an opinion of someone. We know that this is not true, uh, that things are very absolute. And we have to judge, but we, we have to understand that when we judge, it comes with an immense amount of responsibility. Um, in 494, it reads, Oh, you who believe if you strike in the cause of God, you shall be absolutely sure. Do not say to one who offers you peace, you are not a believer seeking the spoils of this world. For God possesses infinite spoils. Remember that you used to be like them and God blessed you. 
Therefore, you shall be absolutely sure before you strike. God is fully cognizant of everything you do. And there's so much wisdom packed in this. So for one, we have to be absolutely sure. You know, if we're going to label someone, we're going to judge someone, we have to be absolutely sure. And God tells us, do not, you are not, a, you know, don't tell someone you're not a believer seeking the spoils of this world. And when we're in these debates, you know, online and social media and stuff, and we immediately lash out saying, you, you know, you're a disbeliever, you're an idol worshiper, you're an enemy of God, you know, all these constitute the same thing. Um, are we looking to please God? Or are we looking to get likes and confirmations and, you know, high five from uh, our friends? And, um, you know, God tells us in the Quran not to sell his revelations for a cheap price. So by all means, we can judge, but we have to understand the, uh, the severity um, if we make uh, the wrong judgment. So we take it very seriously. And um, I know I harp on this uh, example so much, but it's so powerful as the example of David. You know, in uh, chapter 38, two brothers come to David and they uh, uh, are feuding. And one of them says, hey, look, you know, I own one sheep. My brother owns 99 sheep. He wants to combine my sheep with his. What do you recommend we do? And David gives a completely Quranic response. He says, most people who combine their properties treat each other unfairly, except those who believe in work righteousness, and these are few. And um, we see like in uh, 542, uh, it says, they are upholders of lie, eaters of illicit earnings. If they come to you to judge among them, you may judge among them, or you may disregard them. If you choose to disregard them, they cannot harm you in the least. But if you judge among them, you shall be judged equitably. God loves those who are equitable. So by all means, David's purpose as a messenger was to judge. So some people said, oh, you know, he shouldn't have been judging. And this, that, that's not true. This was one of his functions. And then also in 429, it reads, oh, you who believe do not consume each other's properties illicitly. Only mutually acceptable transactions are permitted. You shall not kill yourselves. God is merciful towards you. So God is saying that, you know, only mutually acceptable transactions are permitted. So what I take away from this is that, if you have a scenario where one brother has one sheep and the other one has 99 or vice versa, if one side of this party does not want to follow through with that transaction, irrespective of how illogical or how great of a deal it is, that is their uh, uh, decision. And it says only mutually acceptable transactions are permitted. So since one brother didn't want to do the transaction, David's judgment again was right. But um, we read in the footnote of 3824, it says, in this clear example, 99 on one side, verse 1 on the other side, David's extreme care to render the correct judgment caused him to ask forgiveness. Are we this careful? And um, we see in 3826, uh, it says, O David, we have made you a ruler on earth. Therefore, you shall judge among the people equitably. Do not follow your personal opinion, lest it diverts you from the way of God. And there's some, you know, thought that David had that maybe there was an iota of a possibility that he did something in the wrong. There was some error in his judgment. And um, I'm thinking more and more about this. And it reminds me of uh, 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 the verses in regards to bearing false witness. And 4.135 says, O you who believe you shall be absolutely equitable and observe God when you serve as witnesses, even against yourselves or your parents or your relatives, whether it accuses rich or poor, God takes care of both. Therefore, do not be biased by your personal wishes. If you deviate or disregard this commandment, then God is fully cognizant of everything you do. And 5.8 says, similar uh, to effect, it says, O you who believe, you shall be absolutely equitable and observe God when you serve as witnesses. 
Do not be provoked by your conflicts with some people into committing injustice. You shall be absolutely equitable, for it is more righteous. You shall observe God. God is fully cognizant of everything you do. And God is telling us, you know, do not be provoked by your conflicts with some people into committing an injustice. And the reality is, every single human being on this planet has some form of bias. It's inevitable. You know, we're going to be more uh, likely to side with people who look like us, talk like us, seem like us, uh, come from similar upbringings, like the same sports teams. You know, all these things become factors. And to think that we can, you know, just naturally put that aside is not doing justice. And one of the biases that human beings have is spelt out in Appendix 32 in in regards to the uh, crucial age of 40. So when the messenger tells us that, look, anyone who dies before the age of 40 goes to heaven, uh, this is what he writes. He says, your first reaction to this piece of information is objection. What if the person was really bad, evil, and an atheist? Will he go to heaven if he died before the age of 40? This is because you are mean, while God is most merciful. Our tendency is to put them in hell. So we have to realize that, look, our shortcoming is that we want to write people off. We want to say that these people are going to hell. They're enemies of God. We equate, you know, any behavior that's even remotely similar to the uh, likes of, you know, disbelievers and idol worshippers mentioned in the Quran, the likes of Pharaoh, the likes of Abu Lahab, the Sumerian, you know, these extreme cases. Uh, and this is no different than when you see these, uh, you know, petty debates in regards to politics and one side calls the other side Hitler and Nazis and, you know, uh, attributing to the uh, atrocities of World War II. This really trivializes those matters because we're just downplaying how evil of an act, say, Pharaoh was or Abi Lahab uh, that are mentioned in the uh, the Quran. And, um, you know, God continuously tells us in the Quran to go easy on people. We have to realize we have this bias of being mean. In 1753, the subtitle is Treat Each Other Amicably. And it reads, Tell my servants to treat each other in the best possible manner, for the devil will always try to drive a wedge among them. Surely the devil is man's most ardent enemy. And um, I want to read from uh, something from uh, Rashad Khalifa in the uh, 1989 uh, conference. It seems like it's a handout, and um, it's pretty powerful, uh, and I just wanted to uh, to read from it. I'm going to read uh, just the last portion. It says, as a society of submitters, we must set the standard for moral and righteous behavior. We must be honest, trustworthy, truthful, chaste, loving, and peaceful. God and his angels treat every human being as a potential believer until the time of death. Let us do the same. Let us love every human being as a potential believer who may become better than you and me in due time. This is not uh, means of blind love. Our guide here is the Quran, chapter 60, verse 8 and 9. So, what does 68 and 9 means? And I want to emphasize, look, we have to treat each other with possible... Every single human being is a possible believer. Um, And again, this isn't blind love. In chapter 68 and 9, it reads, basic law regulating relations with unbelievers. It reads, God does not enjoin you from befriending those who do not fight you because of religion and do not evict you from your homes. You may befriend them and be equitable towards them. God loves the equitable. In uh, 69, it continues, God enjoins you only from befriending those who fight you because of religion, evict you from your homes, and band together with others to banish you. You shall not befriend them 
Those who befriend them are the transgressors. So God is telling us very specifically who we're not allowed to be friends with. It says those who fight you because of religion, evict you from your homes, and band together with others to banish you. And this is reiterated in chapter 3, verse 118. It says, Oh, you believe, do not befriend outsiders who never cease to wish you harm. They even wish to see you suffer. Hatred flows out of their mouths, and what they hide in their chest is far worse. We thus clarify the revelations for you, if you understand. And you see consistently in the Quran when it's talking about the people we're not supposed to befriend, these are people who are wishing us harm, you know, if they had the opportunity physically, but it could also be with their words uh, that they're being, you know, uh, hateful and spiteful to us. These are the people that we're not supposed to befriend. And this is specifically in regards to religion. Um, and um, a real kind of a profound example of what, how we're supposed to implement this concept of treating people as a potential believer, giving them the benefit of the doubt until they become exposed as otherwise. In um, chapter 20, verse 44, when God spoke to Moses, he tells him to go to Pharaoh and speak to him nicely. And you think of this, Pharaoh is probably one of the most despicable, uh, terrible human beings that ever lived on this planet. And God is telling Moses to speak to him nicely, to give him a chance, you know, to try to give him the message in the most appropriate way. And um, needless to say, when Pharaoh responded by threatening to kill uh, Moses and the believers, to kill the firstborn, to uh, continue with the oppression, uh, Moses' tone changed and he prayed to for God to hearten his heart and to wipe out all their wealth. And um, we see the same thing with Noah. Uh, in chapter 71, uh, Noah speaks to his people. He says, you know, I speak to them loudly, softly, privately, publicly, uh, but they revert. And in uh, chapter 26, verse 116, it says that uh Noah was uh, was uh, inspired that no more of his people were going to believe. So he knew that, okay, everyone who chose to believe, this was it. Everyone who was left in his community, they were destined to be a disbeliever. In chapter 60, uh, verse uh, 13, I believe it says, do not befriend those who are hopelessly stuck in disbelief. You know, at this point, there is no return for them. And um, you see that, uh, again, Noah's uh, tone changed, that he says, you know, don't leave a single disbeliever uh, because they're going to uh, give birth to nothing but uh, disbelievers. And that's in chapter 71, verse 76. Um, and one of the paradoxes that people run into, they say, look, if you're supposed to speak to people nicely and be amicable and be uh, uh, forthcoming, um, how do you justify that without tolerating uh, bad behavior? And in uh, 8.25, it says, Beware of a retribution that may not be limited to the evildoers among you. You should know that God's retribution is severe. And the footnote reads, A community that tolerates homosexuality, for example, may be hit by an earthquake. And um, we have to understand that, look, there's a difference between tolerating and being accepting and tolerating and kind of be, you know being uh, firm with our stance. Uh, I like to equate it to the example of uh, abortion. Um, there's a saying that I really, uh, uh, stand by that it says you cannot legislate morality, right? If a society decides to be immoral, there's nothing you can do legislatively to change that because, um, uh, what ends up happening is people are going to continue with the act irrespective. You think about prohibition, they ban alcohol. How effective was that? You know, we, we had this war on drugs for decades and decades. You know, how many people stopped doing drugs? Uh, it's meaningless. The aspect is until you can, uh, the people choose to live a life of morality, you can't force it upon them. But it doesn't mean that you have to accept the behavior. 
You can speak up against it. You can give verses from the Quran. You can be firm in your stance, but it doesn't mean that you're tolerating. Tolerating means that you're accepting of the behavior. You're condoning it as opposed to condemning it. I can condemn something. It doesn't mean that I'm going to use force to enforce it. There's very few laws in the Quran that God allows us to use force. Uh, one is in the sense of uh, uh, aggression. We're allowed to uh, aggress those who aggress upon us. And the other one is in regards to stealing, uh, basically murder, um, adultery, these very limited kind of acts that God tells us there's specific punishments. For everything else, it basically falls under the camp of uh, equivalence and uh, making sure that you're, we're either uh, speaking the truth, leading a good example, or if someone is victimized, that the... Uh, uh, the person who did the uh, victimizing um, is uh, refrained from the act and they actually uh, pay due compensation to the uh, victim. In 788, it reads, the arrogance leaders among his people said, we will evict you, O Shweb, together with those who believe with you from our town, unless you revert to our religion. He said, are you going to force us? Right. This is the act of the disbeliever. The disbeliever wants to force belief on everyone. You look at, you know, Iran, Saudi Arabia, you know, some of the worst places on this planet is where people don't have freedom of religion and they're being forced to believe a certain way. Uh, China with communism, uh, they've toned down a bit, but, you know, historically it's been uh, just as bad. In um, uh, 1128, we read the example of uh, Noah. It says, he said, oh, my people, what if I have solid proof from my Lord? What if he has blessed me out of mercy, though you cannot see? Are we going to force you to believe therein? And in 1099, it reads, uh, had your Lord willed, all the people on earth would have believed. Do you want to force the people to become believers? Right? We can't force the people to become believers. And um, one of the uh, the things that you see a lot of people resorting to, and it's, it's interesting, the Quran Whatever your understanding is, whatever is in your heart, you're going to gravitate towards those verses and emphasize those verses over the other ones. One of the ones that I see a lot of people emphasize towards is in chapter 48, verse 29. It says, Muhammad, the messenger of God, and those with him are harsh and stern against the disbelievers, but kind and compassionate among themselves. And by all means, this is an absolute 100% Quranic statement, but this concept of harsh and stern, what does that mean, you know? And I think about it is you can take this to mean that you have to be uh, uh, aggressive and nasty and mean, or you can understand it in the sense of you take the example of a parent with a child. You know, if a child acts out, if a child does something against the uh, the parent's wishes, they can be harsh and stern. They basically are able to be uh, very upfront with the facts, with, uh, you know, brute truth, and they can be unmoving in their decision. But by no means are they doing it out of hatred, you know, out of uh, uh, spite. Um, in that sense, they're doing it because they truly do not like sin and they want to do it in a way that doesn't give the person the excuse to defer from the, uh, uh, the, the logic based on how it was delivered. In uh, 3159, we read this uh, title is uh, The Messenger's Kindness. It says, it was mercy from God that you became compassionate towards them. Had you been harsh and mean hearted, they would have abandoned you. Therefore, you shall pardon them, ask forgiveness for them, and consult them. Once you make a decision, carry out your plan, trust in God. God loves those who trust in him. And in uh, 16, 126, and it says, And if you punish, you shall inflict an equivalent punishment. But if you resort to patience instead of revenge, it would be better for the patient ones. You shall resort to patience, and your patience is attainable only with God's help. Do not grieve over them. Do not be annoyed by their schemes. Right? This is the uh, the conduct of what I see in the Quran in regards to how believers are supposed to act. And we have to take in consideration that if we're acting in a way that's repulsing people from 
the uh, the message of the path from God, we bear a part of that responsibility. In 9.9, it reads, they traded away God's revelations for a cheap price. Consequently, they repulsed the people from his path. Miserable indeed is what they did. If you're acting mean and nasty to someone to get the accolades of your peers, you're really not doing a service for your soul. And in 485, it says, whoever mediates a good deed receives a share of the credit thereof, and whoever mediates an evil work incurs a share uh, thereof. God controls all things. So if my actions, the way I'm behaving, the way I delivered a message is causing someone else to be repulsed by the message, I bear a part of that sin. I bear a part of that guilt. And um, we see that, you know, God tells us how we're supposed to spread God's message. In 16.125 says, you shall invite to the path of your Lord with wisdom and enlightenment and debate with them in the best possible manner. Your Lord knows best who is strayed from his path, and he knows best who are the guided ones. In 41.33, it says, Who can utter better words than one who invites to God, works righteousness, and says, I am one of the submitters. Not equal is the good response and the bad response. You shall resort to the nicest possible response. Thus, the one, used to be an, uh, the one who used to be your enemy may become your best friend. None can attain this except those who steadfastly persevere. None can attain this except those who are extremely fortunate. And... Um, one of the aspects that I wanted to look at is, you know, what is the outcome of uh, judging? Like, how can you judge harshly and sternly and still do it in a way that's uh, pleasing to God? And uh, I thought of the example of Lot. And in uh, Lot, in chapter 7, verse 80, it said, Lot said to his people, you commit such an abomination. No one else in the world has done it before. You practice sex with the men instead of the women. Indeed, you are transgressing people. And you see that Lot was completely repulsed by this behavior. And he's being harsh and stern with them, telling them exactly what he finds uh, wrong with the, uh, the their actions. And in 1177, it says, when our messengers went to Lot, they were mistreated and he was embarrassed by their presence. He said, this is a difficult day. His people came rushing. They had grown accustomed to their sinful acts. He said, oh, my people would be pure for you if you take my daughters instead. You shall reverence God. Do not embarrass me and my guests. Have you not one reasonable man among you? And my understanding of this verse is that Lot was so uh, turned off by sin, so disgusted by it, that he was willing to give his own daughters in marriage to these people in order to have them refrain from the sin. And uh, my takeaway from this is if we truly care to judge people, we have to do our part to help them get away from sin if it's possible. And in 3104, it reads, let there be a community of you who invite to what is good, advocate righteousness and forbid evil. These are the winners. So Lot wanted to advocate righteousness and forbid evil. And he knew that by telling them not to do it wasn't enough, that he was willing to go the extra mile and say, look, marry my daughters instead. Um, but he knew that they wouldn't take him up on this offer because in the following verse, they say, you know full well, we have no need for these. You know exactly what it is we want. And it was just showed how disgusting of an individual the people of Lot were. Um, that, you know, you have these, in, you have the angels who are traveling alien, part of the, you know, one of the, uh, the lowest pe uh, people of the uh, totem pole of a community, and they wanted to basically take them out to have their way with them. Um, but even then, we see the example of Abraham, when uh, the angels went to Abraham before going to Lot. Um, Abraham debate, uh, basically tried to argue on behalf of the people a lot. And as soon as the angels said that uh, God's command has already been issued in chapter 11, verse 74, uh, Abraham refrained. And uh, in the following verse, we read that uh, 
God says that uh, uh, when Abraham's fear subsided, the good news was delivered to him. He proceeded to argue with us on behalf of Lot's people. Indeed, Abraham was clement, extremely kind, and obedient. O Abraham, refrain from this. Your Lord's judgment has been issued. They have incurred unavoidable retribution. So it says Abraham was clement, extremely kind, and obedient. That he was treating these people as if they had hope, as if there was a chance for them. And once the angel said that God's judgment has already been issued, it showed the obedience of Abraham because he immediately refrained. And um, we have to give people these uh, the benefit of the doubt, right? To give them the, uh, the chance, the opportunity uh, to speak to them nicely. And if it doesn't work, we just, we forget, you know, we, we put it aside, we ignore them. And um, one of the arguments you hear, they say, uh, well, you can't argue on behalf of these people. Uh, in 4107 says, do not defend the transgressors. Do not argue on behalf of those who have wronged their souls, uh, their own souls. God does not love any betrayer guilty. And I think this verse gets mis, uh, misabused um, for the reason that they think that because someone has committed a, uh, a sinful act, that they don't deserve fair representation. Now, if we extrapolated this out where you had a submitting society, who would defend the people who committed, you know, heinous acts? Uh, would we just kind of like forget about them and uh, uh, allow whatever vice takes place? No. Even in that society, we have to be equitable. Someone does something that's sinful, that's harmful, that's malicious. Uh, God tells us that we have to treat them uh, equitably, that we have a criminal justice system, that we can't punish them beyond what it is that they've done. Um, and even the people who are guilty, it doesn't mean that you defend them, that you're justifying their actions. What you're doing is you have to put a benchmark to, okay, what is the proper response based on what it is that they've done? I just want to read a couple more verses. In 2563, it says, The worshipers of the most gracious are those who tread the earth gently, and when the ignorant speak to them, they only utter peace. 3.133 says, You should eagerly race towards forgiveness from your Lord, and a paradise who with encompasses the heavens and the earth. It awaits the righteous who give to charity during the good times as well as the bad times. They are suppressors of anger, partners of the people. God loves the charitable. 7.198, when you invite them to the guidance, they do not hear, and you see them looking at you, but they do not see. You shall resort to pardon, advocate tolerance, and disregard the ignorant. When the devil whispers to you, any whisper, seek refuge in God. He is here omniscient. And I wanted to look at one other example, and this is in regards to uh, Moses. So when uh, Moses left to uh, uh, get the commandments from God, uh, the uh, children of Israel followed the Sumerian, and they began to worship a golden calf. And um, when they reflected that this was obviously, you know, a sinful act, uh, they repented and Moses came back. Moses didn't um, disregard all the children of Israel. He basically isolated the, uh, the culprit, which was the Sumerian. He parted ways with him. And as for the rest of the children of Israel, Moses selected 70 men. And um, let me find this. So this is 7155 says Moses then selected 70 men from among his people to come to our appointed audience. When the quake shook them, he said, my Lord, you could have annihilated them in the past together with me. If you so willed, would you annihilate us for the deeds of those among us who are foolish? This must be the test that you have instituted for us. With it, you condemn whomever you will and guide whomever you will. You are a Lord and master. So forgive us showers with your mercy. You're the best uh, forgiver. And we see here that. Moses, you know, he took these people, he went and pleaded on behalf of uh, them to God, um, and he put himself as part of the uh, the group. Uh, he says, you could have annihilated us and them, uh, you know, if he so will. 
And um, I see this as an example is, again, if we really want, if we uh, want to advocate righteousness and forbid evil, one of the, the, the best things we can do is to, to, to pray for the people, to pray for the guidance of the people, to get people back on the path of God. And uh, by no means is this supposed to be a, a inquiry for a, a intercession. God tells us in 980, whether you ask forgiveness for them or do not ask forgiveness for them, even if you ask forgiveness for them 70 times, God will not forgive them. This is because they disbelieve in God and his messenger. God does not guide the wicked people. And what we're doing here is we're asking God, we're in communication with God, asking for the guidance for us, for all the people who have sincerity in their heart, who uh, uh, could benefit from this uh, the message to be appreciative of God. And the reality is we gain everything by praying for this and we lose nothing. And one of the arguments against this you hear a lot, they say, you know, why pray for people? God knows immediately who's going to heaven and who's going to hell. And I think of this no different than uh, the argument of why give to charity? You know, God could feed everyone if he wants. God's uh, resources are infinite. Why does he need us to give charity? And in 3647, it says, when they are told, give from God's provisions to you, those who disbelieve, say to those who believe, why should we give to those whom God could feed if he so willed? You're really far astray. So we have an opportunity here to pray for people, to pray for people's guidance, for pray to uh, allow people to, for their hearts to be opened up, to uh, uh, hear God's message, to accept God's message, to accept God. And in uh, 3343, we read about the angels. It says, he's the one who helps you together with his angels to lead you out of darkness into the light. He's most merciful towards the believers. Uh, 47, uh, those who serve the throne and all those around it glorify and praise their Lord and believe in him. And they ask forgiveness for those who believe our Lord, your mercy and your knowledge encompasses all things. Forgive those who repent and follow your path and spare them the retribution of hell. So if we want to be, you know, take example from the, uh, the, the angels, you know, from, uh, the, the righteous, we see the example of Abraham. That as long as someone is on this path, as long as someone is in living, breathing, we can pray for their guidance. Now, if someone obviously violates this, nothing but hatred and uh, animosity is coming out of their uh, their mouth towards us, we can disregard them. We can walk away. Uh, we can uh, stand up for our rights. But for everyone else, we have to be patient. And one of the realities is even among the believers, you know, the believers were going to fight. And it's tempting that when we get in a fight with another believer, a disagreement, uh, a, a difference of understanding, that we don't resort to labeling them as disbelievers, idol worshippers, enemy of God. Um, and we see this in 49.9. says, if two groups of believers fought with each other, you shall reconcile them. If one group aggresses against the other, you shall fight the aggressing group until they submit to God's command. Once they submit, you shall reconcile the two groups equitably. You shall maintain justice. God loves those who are just. In 59.10, it says, those who became believers after them say, our Lord, forgive us and our brethren who preceded us to the faith and keep our hearts from harboring any hatred towards those who believe. Our Lord, you are compassionate, most merciful. So God is telling us that, look, the believers, they're going to get into uh, strife with one another. They're going to aggress against one another. And we have to hold fast the rope of God to make sure that he keeps our hearts in the right place, that we don't harbor this hatred for one another. In 3.103, I think this is the, the, one of the, uh, the best examples. It says, the believers are united. You shall hold fast to the rope of God, all of you, and do not be divided. Recall God's blessings upon you. You used to be enemies, and he reconciled your hearts. By his grace, you became brethren. You were at the brink of a pit of fire, and he saved you therefrom. God thus explains his revelations for you that you may be guided. 
Let there be a community of you who invite to what is good, advocate righteousness, and forbid evil. These are the winners. Do not be like those who became divided and disputed despite the clear proofs that were given to them. For these have incurred a terrible retribution. God is telling us that we used to be enemies and he reconciled your hearts, that we were on a brink of a pit of fire and he saved us. In 863, it reads, he, he has reconciled the hearts of the believers. Had you spent all the money on earth, you could not reconcile their hearts. God, but God did reconcile them. He's almighty, most wise. And it's worth pointing out here, reconciliation is not resolution. Reconciliation is putting our differences aside and learning how to coexist with one another. Resolution is figuring out an answer to our differences. And a lot of people, they equate reconciliation with resolution. And God is telling us he made us into distinct people and tribes that we might recognize one another, to respect one another. And um, I wanted to talk about the, the uh, uh, Franz Stigler and Charlie Brown story uh, as kind of a wrap up. So, you know, we, we heard uh, what took place. And the question was, why didn't Franz Stigler shoot the plane down? Obviously, he saw uh, that he had the uh, the upper hand. This was an enemy aircraft in his airspace. He should have shot it down, right? But why didn't he? Well, before World War II, uh, Germany had uh, uh, campaigns in Northern Africa. And uh, at that time, Franz Stigler was an Air, uh, Air Force pilot and um, a fighter pilot. And uh, his commanding officer asked him a question. He said, Franz, if you shoot a plane down and the person parachutes out, what do you do to that person? Do you kill them or do you let them live? And he didn't know how to respond. And Franz responds, uh, before he can respond back, the commanding officer said, listen, if you shoot that person after they parachute out of that plane, you can guarantee when you come back here, I'm going to shoot you. And he told him, he says, we don't keep these rules of war for the enemy. We keep these rules of war because we have to live with ourselves. That when we go to bed at night, we can sleep comfortably. So again, God tells us what the rules of conduct is between us, the disbelievers, uh, and the, uh, the, the, the potential believers. And we have to do our utmost to try to maintain these laws. And a lot of times people think that, oh, you're being soft. And the reality is like, look, I'm not looking to please other human beings. I'm only looking to please God. And it's not easy, right? It's tempting to, to lash out, to be nasty, uh, to uh, do a cheap shot, to call people hypocrites, disbelievers, enemy of God. Uh, but the fact is, look, if these people are imploring God day and night, uh, devoting themselves absolutely to God alone, I have to be patient with them. They might not uh, agree with what I, how I understand it and vice versa. I might not agree with their understanding. But if we can reconcile, learn to live with one another, then God willing, we'll be able to please God. Inshallah, we're going to stop there. If you guys got comments or questions, hit us up at crontalk at gmail.com. And until next time, peace and God bless.